Welcome to Aspen Insight from the Aspen Institute. I'm Zach St. Louis. And I'm Marcy Krivenen. Well, it's tax season, and this year Americans will start to see the impact of changes made under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act passed in December. David Mitchell with our financial security program gets us up to speed on what these changes will mean for American families, small businesses, and everyone else. But first, we look into another issue dominating national headlines. Breaking news into our newsroom, Special Counsel Robert Mueller has charged another person in the Russia investigation. Investigation into Russia and its interference in the 2016 presidential campaign. NBC News. Special Counsel Robert Mueller and his investigation of Russia and the 2016 presidential campaign has taken over the news cycle. One of our colleagues here at the Institute is an expert on Mueller. Garrett Graff wrote a book about the former FBI director seven years ago. Garrett is the executive director of the Institute's Cybersecurity and Technology Program. He's a journalist who has covered politics, technology, and national security for Wired, The New York Times, and Politico. I talked to Garrett on March 5th, before the Trump administration announced new sanctions on Russia. The sanctions aimed at Russian individuals and organizations are the harshest punishment yet from the White House for Russia's interference into the 2016 election. Since Garrett has such an extensive background, I started our conversation by rattling off all the things I wanted him to talk about. Robert Mueller, the Russia investigation, the midterm elections, and cybersecurity. Does that sound good? That all works for me. Each of the things that you mentioned, I normally talk for about an hour to 90 minutes on. So as long as you're fine, um, just sort of going straight for the next four and a half hours, like we should be fine. (laughs) Yeah, no problem. It's a four hour podcast. We expect a lot of our listeners. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Okay, great. Well, I'm going to go ahead and start. And thanks so much for joining me, Garrett. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. First, I want to talk about special counsel Robert Mueller. You wrote about him in your 2011 book, The Threat Matrix, and were one of the first to closely follow his career. Why did you choose to write about him? I started writing about Bob Mueller in 2008 uh, when he was FBI director, in part because even then uh, I was fascinated at how he was the last remaining senior U.S. government official in the same job that he had been in on 9-11. Bob Mueller took over the FBI on September 4th, 2001, and was actually sitting in the FBI director's conference room on the seventh floor of the Hoover building, getting his first briefing about al-Qaeda and the bombing of the USS Cole on the morning of September 11th when the when one of his aides rushed into the room to tell him about the attack on the World Trade Center. So I had been sort of fascinated to try to go back and uh, trace what what that moment had been like, what that evolution had been like uh, leading the FBI after 9-11. And then, of course, what what we didn't know at the time was that uh, when I started writing about him, at least, was that he would not only serve out the 10-year term uh, of an FBI director becoming the first to do so since J. Edgar Hoover died in 1972, but also would then be extended uh, by President Obama and a special act of Congress that passed the Senate 100 to zero that would uh, that would extended him for an additional two years 
such that he led the FBI for a grand total of 12 years. Wow. And a uh, confirmation vote of 100 to zero is unheard of today. Uh, absolutely. And, and was even you know relatively unheard of then. And it goes to show you, uh, you know, in 2011, just how much of a uh, you know, bipartisan, apolitical figure Bob Mueller was in Washington. I mean, this is someone who has spent the better part of 50 years now working uh, for the Justice Department. You know, you've said that Mueller puts defending the Constitution at the center of everything he does. How do you see him doing that in the investigation of Russian meddling into the 2016 U.S. election? Yeah. So Bob Mueller is sort of this fascinating character. He, One of his aides said to me that he seems like someone who stepped right out of a history book, um, you know, is sort of an uh, upstanding patrician Eastern establishment, uh, Ivy educated figure, unlike that which we really see in modern life anymore. And he's someone who has a deep, deep affinity for the Constitution writ large and the Justice Department. And and I think you can see it actually in the way that he is uh, pursuing this particular investigation. Bob Mueller has several things that are characteristic of a traditional uh, investigation by him, one of which is just his sheer tenacity and thoroughness. I think what you are seeing play out right now is that Mueller has a very straightforward moral compass. He sees things as black or white, right or wrong, true or false. And Bob Mueller is not someone who sees a lot of gray in the world and not someone who, unlike a lot of people in Washington, is willing to shade uh, gray for someone else's decisions. You see him being incredibly strict on the way that he's interpreting rules and, you know, very heavily and uh, quickly charging people who lie to him, uh, which is uh, those so-called 1001 violations in federal law, lying to a federal agent, which has been sort of the core of actually many of the cases that he has brought so far in his investigation. Well, and one of the results of the investigation that I wanted to talk to you about was the indictment of the 13 Russians and three companies, uh, you know, for subverting the 2016 election, because this has to do with cybersecurity. These operatives were creating hundreds of social media accounts and posed as anti-immigration groups, Christian activists, and more. I mean, it's a chilling um, discovery. So with the midterm elections coming up, do you have any thoughts on how this kind of online interference could be stopped? Yeah. So I think uh, it's important to break down uh, what the Russians did. Um, You know, when we say the Russians hacked the election, we, we actually really mean at least two very specific separate avenues that they used to attack our democracy. The first is what we saw reflected in that indictment uh, against the Internet Research Agency and the 13 Russian 
officials, including um, the oligarch Prigozhin, known as Putin's chef, who is a close friend of the Kremlin and Vladimir Putin, were information operations uh, used to influence and sort of shape the domestic political conversation that we were having. Separately, uh, this is something that we have not yet seen publicly in Mueller's investigation, but I think we will, is the active cyber penetrations by Russian intelligence, the FSB and GRU intelligence teams known as Cozy Bear and Fancy Bear that hacked and exfiltrated and leaked information from the DNC, the DCCC, from John Podesta, uh, tried to attack state-level voting machine systems uh, across the country. Um, Those are sort of two separate halves, um, uh, and I think we have every reason to believe that we will see Mueller bring charges in that second half, charging them would be entirely consistent with the model that the Justice Department has laid out over the last decade um, in charging hackers from Russia, from Iran, from North Korea, from China. And actually, that was a model, just to get in a little Aspen plug here, uh, that was a model that was really created and shaped and and founded by John Carlin uh, and Lisa Monaco, who lead the cyber program that I work with and the cyber strategy group. Uh, It was their work at the Department of Justice and at the White House that really set that model out to charge hackers overseas working for foreign governments when you're able to identify them as uh, being personally responsible for an attack. Oh, wow. That's an interesting Aspen connection. So, I mean, do you you think that charge is enough or, I don't know, part of a bigger toolbox that might help the situation in future elections? Yes. Charging uh, is a step, but it's not a sufficient step. Um, and, And I actually think that John and Lisa would be the first to tell you that, that this is part of what the government would call an all tools approach to trying to shape cyber norms, which is we don't want other countries coming into our democracy and trying to mess with it. And we will bring criminal charges as part of that, but we will also bring, you know, international sanctions. We will cut off people from uh, the banking system. We will make it hard for people to travel. Uh, We will expel diplomats. We will use every tool that the U.S. government possesses to discourage that behavior. Um, You know, Mueller's indictment is a big step, but Russia right now views their election uh, attack as enormously successful, uh, and and rightly so. Um, You know, they deeply reshaped and fundamentally reshaped uh, not just U.S. politics, but Western democracies and Western alliances uh, throughout the world with their efforts and uh, have uh, effectively paid zero meaningful cost thus far. This shouldn't be a partisan issue. None of us should want foreign countries or foreign adversaries 
feeling like they can mess with our politics. Um, and the reason, in part, that it should be a nonpartisan issue is there's absolutely no guarantee that the next time Russia meddles in our elections, it's going to be to help Donald Trump. Um, it, you know, th there's no reason that China or Iran or North Korea uh, or any of our other foreign adversaries might not both meddle in the election and meddle to help or hurt candidates of their own choosing. Let me ask you a little bit about your program at the Aspen Institute, and perhaps your program is involved in finding some solutions to, you know, foreign interference in U.S. elections. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. But you mentioned John Carlin and Lisa Monaco. Um, are they the leads of the Cybersecurity and Technology Program? And you are the executive director, correct, Garrett? Absolutely. So I, I work on the program day to day. Um, John Carlin, uh, who was the Assistant Attorney General for National Security, uh, the nation's head uh, national security prosecutor, uh, chairs the program. And then our cyber, uh, cyber group uh, sort of modeled on the Aspen Strategy Group here uh, that works on foreign policy, but ours, of course, focuses on cybersecurity, uh, is led by Lisa Monaco as the Democratic chair. Congressman Will Hurd as the Republican chair, and Ginny Rometty, the chairman, CEO, and president of IBM as the chair from the technology community. And the goal is uh, of the group and the program is to try to work on the most pressing problems in cybersecurity um, and to move what are a lot of high-level uh, conversations and uh, agreed upon theories uh, into action. Um, you know, I think sort of all of us uh, in the private sector, the public sector, and civil society who look at cybersecurity see it as an area where the level of effort is being far outstripped by the danger. You know, that cybersecurity is effectively modern life. This is about the cars that we drive, the hospitals that we go to, our personal data. Um, it, you know, it, it's about our values. I mean, the uh, the attack by North Korea on Sony was an attack on the First Amendment. The attack by Russia on the 2016 election was an attack on our democratic process. This is an area where we just need much more effort. We need uh, much more robust discussion, uh, and uh, we need much closer collaboration between the public sector and the private sector. I mean, this is a unique national security problem and a unique societal problem because for the first time uh, in, in U.S. history, the private sector is really the front lines of this national security threat. Garrett, anything else that we didn't um, cover that you'd like to mention? No, we covered a lot. We sure did. It was under four hours, so that's positive. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
Garrett Graff has authored multiple books, including his latest, Raven Rock, about the U.S. government's Cold War doomsday plans. He was the editor of Washingtonian and Politico, and now directs the Aspen Institute's Cybersecurity and Technology Program. To learn more about the program's work, visit aspeninstitute.org insight. If you like this show but want to hear from the Aspen Institute more than just once a month, you're in luck. We have another podcast for you. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly show that features conversations from live events hosted by the Aspen Institute. Like this recent episode, which features a discussion with former U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy about treating gun violence as a public health issue. He spoke at the 2017 Spotlight Health Conference. Whenever you have large numbers of people who are dying for preventable reasons, that constitutes a public health crisis. Find it by searching for Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to today's episode. The unemployment rate in the U.S. is the lowest it's been in nearly two decades. So how are people handling their money? Turns out many Americans live paycheck to paycheck. David Mitchell with the Institute's Financial Security Program says putting savings away is tough. Nearly half of Americans report that if they needed $400 in a pinch, they would have to borrow it or put it on a credit card. They don't have savings of that amount. With tax season upon us, we wondered if the new tax plan Congress passed late last year meant more money in the pockets of American families. So I brought David into the studio to get his perspective. Thanks for joining me, David. Thanks for having me, Zach. I wanted to bring you in because it's tax season. And as we all know, back in December, there was this huge tax plan passed. But I don't think a lot of Americans fully grasp what that could possibly mean for themselves, their families, their businesses. And I wanted to bring you in to get your take on this. What does this mean on a big picture for individuals? Sure. So it is a lot to digest. It was a big bill that passed, as you mentioned, in December. And the short but very unsatisfying answer for families is that it depends. There were lots of credits extended, credits sunsetted, deductions increased, deductions taken away. Um, So the big one was the standard deduction was increased and the personal exemption was decreased, for example. And so for most families, it's going to be a wash, but it depends a lot on your individual circumstances. And it's hard from the outside to say, even before before you yourself complete your tax forms, what the result is going to be for you. Maybe we can take a step back for a second. So you work for our financial security program. Can you explain what you do and why you care about this issue? Yeah, the financial security program is interested in strengthening both the short and long-term financial stability of American working families. Um, So it is a fair question of why we're interested in the tax code. You know, it turns out that a lot of social policy is made through the tax code. Um, for example, incentives for retirement savings or for home ownership. Um, there's refundable tax credits that come once a year to some low-income working families that are the biggest, um, the biggest plus up in their budget for the for the whole year. So all of this actually does matter on the ground to families. Um, and, and actually, historically, the tax code has mostly incentivized higher-income folks. Um, in the wealth building department, so around retirement savings, for example, or home ownership. And 
you know, we think at the financial security program that there could be some improvements there and, and some equal equalization that could happen across the code. Um, you know, unfortunately, this particular bill uh, didn't touch those, um, those tax expenditures is the technical term for them. Um, and we think that's a missed opportunity. Can you give an example of something that might make it more equitable? Sure. So, um, for you know, putting money into your 401k at work, we all get uh, access to a pretty nice tax break when we do that. And that tax break gets more and more valuable the higher and higher income you are, which is a bit um, perverse uh, a policy. And there's an idea out there that, that we and others have championed called uh, a refundable savers credit that would basically turn what is right now a deduction or a deferral um, into a credit against taxes owed. This would make it more valuable for lower income taxpayers who deserve the same incentive as anybody for um, depositing money into a savings account, into a retirement account. We want people to have uh, money when they're done working so that they don't um, go into poverty in their old age. And this would be a good way of incentivizing that across the board rather than just for higher income folks. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the biggest kind of getting away from the tax code a little bit, but what are some of the biggest challenges that you see families having when it comes to accruing personal wealth or securing themselves financially for the future? Sure. So one of the things that we've focused on at the financial security program um, to address that very question is looking at more short-term stability issues. So you can't build long-term wealth if you're you know, trying to take out payday loans just to make the rent, obviously. So um, and unfortunately, all the stats indicate that pretty high up the income spectrum, well into the middle class, people really are living paycheck to paycheck, hand to mouth. Um, about nearly half of Americans report that if they needed $400 in a pinch, they would have to borrow it or put it on a credit card. They don't have savings of that amount even in, in wow. a bank account. So. Um, so we've focused a lot, not just on those wealth building opportunities of retirement um, and home ownership and you know, health care through your job, but also short term stability issues like income volatility. Mm -hmm. So the, the swings that people are experiencing week to week and month to month in their wages, as well as consumer debt. So those payday loans that we talked about or credit card, uh, revolving credit card debt or auto loans. Um, those have been increasing ever since the Great Recession, and it is a cause of concern among some economists. I feel like these two issues are related. The issue of financial independence uh, and security for individuals, and then also you're talking a lot about how employers have a hand in all of this as well. Going back to the tax code, I know that corporations also received a large tax cut in this plan. How can employers use that tax cut to help their employees and thereby help with all of these issues that you just described? Yeah, so we think this is a big opportunity for um, corporations who, like you said, did receive a pretty big windfall from the tax bill in December. That really was the centerpiece of the legislative package. Um, and you know, there have been now recent announcements we've seen in the news of companies that are announcing uh, bonuses to some workers as a result of this new money or small increases in wages. Others have announced um, stock buybacks and dividend increases. And there is a big debate about to what extent is this money going to, you know, quote unquote, trickle down to working folks. 
I think it's too soon to say for sure what the end result will be, but something that we're focused on at the financial security program is encouraging employers to take this money and make long-term investments in their workforce. So obviously, one-time bonuses are great. We all love some extra money in our pocket, but there are opportunities to help workers, for example, save up that $400 that they need if there's an emergency, if their car breaks down. So that's one idea, is automatically enrolling workers into what we call a sidecar or rainy day savings account, um, helping with a bigger match on a retirement account, a retirement um, plan through work. Some employers are helping millennials pay back student debt. So I think that employers could be more holistic in their approach to helping workers, not just on the wage side, but on the wealth building side, on the, the suite of benefits that we all get through a good quality job. What benefits are there for employers who implement these kinds of strategies for their workers? So there's emerging evidence that financial stress is a huge preoccupation of workers on the job, right? So you're not going to be as good on the uh, manufacturing line if you're worried about some overdue bill or you can't afford your kid's college tuition bill that month. So there is some evidence that productivity would go up, worker turnover would go down, and that overall the business's bottom line would benefit from having a financially secure workforce. One last question. As we're looking out on a lot of unknowns, a lot of knowns about this tax plan, what it's going to mean for individuals, what it's going to mean for families, what it's going to mean for businesses, corporations, what would be one hope for the financial security program that would come out of this tax bill? So I'm going to give two answers, even though you just asked for one, Zach, sorry. Um, That's fine. The first is kind of what we talked about earlier. I do think this is an opportunity for employers who have now come into a lot of money um, to invest in their workforce. And we do think that there is momentum here and that there are good ideas to be tested in this area. We're happy to help any employers that are listening that might want some pointers on how to set up these emergency accounts or the retirement accounts. So I think that's one area that we'd love to be a result of this, this tax bill. And I think another is just refocusing the debate and the discourse around how many incentives and how much policy is written into the tax code. We often think of the tax code as this technocratic, obviously headache-inducing, thousand-page document, but there really is a lot of important policy that uh, is driven through the tax code. And I think if Americans were more focused on it, the resulting policy would be more equitable, more progressive. Some of those perverse tax incentives that I was talking about earlier would be reversed. Uh, and we would just have a more rational tax code for individuals. David Mitchell is the senior program manager with the Aspen Institute Financial Security Program. Find out more about their work by visiting aspeninstitute.org FSP. That's it for today's episode. Do us a favor and rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And tell a friend to listen, too. You can also tell us what you think of the show by sending us your thoughts on Twitter by using hashtag Aspen Insight. Aspen Insight is a production of the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Special thanks to our colleagues in the Institute's Cybersecurity and Technology Program and Financial Security Program for their help with today's episode. I'm Marcy Grivenen. And I'm Zach St. Louis. Thanks for listening. <laughs>